0: Welcome back to the Diet Doctor podcast with Dr. Brett Schur. Today I'm joined by Dr. Ken Berry. Dr. Berry is a primary care physician in Tennessee who has had his own journey into the low-carb world and now that he's here, he's hard to ignore. He's a, a large personality with a great message and he is not shy about shouting this message about the benefits of low-carb diets because he's experienced it with himself and with his patients. He has a website at KenDBerryMD.com and a very popular YouTube channel where he produces a ton of videos to just to give as much information to as many people because he believes so dearly and so strongly in the benefits of low-carb lifestyle. And he approaches this from a very unique perspective, that he really says if we're going to change the way we've been eating from an ancestral standpoint, we need to have extremely strong data to support that. And as he points out, that type of approach, that type of data or perspective is lacking in almost every recommendation we currently have as a mainstream nutritional guideline. So it really flies in the face of of, uh, common practice in medicine and in nutrition and he's not shy about pointing that out. So as any discussion with Dr. Barry, this is very entertaining and energetic uh, with a great perspective from him. So I really hope you enjoy this. Please visit us at dietdoctor.com to see the whole transcripts and of course to see all our recipes and guides and all the other wonderful information at dietdoctor.com. Enjoy this interview with Dr. Ken Berry. Dr. Ken Barry, thank you so much for joining me on the Diet Doctor podcast. Hey, Brett, my pleasure. Good to be with you. It's truly a pleasure to have you here. I mean, you're so prolific in your information that you provide on your YouTube channel and your Facebook. And I want to get into a little bit about your journey because you've been out in practice as a primary care doctor for about 20 years now. And I know the way you started is not the way you're practicing now. And I'm sure it's been a a crazy eye-opening journey for you. So tell us a little bit about that background and about the journey and then we'll get into some of the specifics of what you're doing now.
1: Sure. So I graduated in 2000 from a state university medical school in Tennessee and was trained uh, allopathically and practiced traditional allopathic medicine, uh, if you came to me and you were uh, morbidly obese and diabetic and had high cholesterol, I would immediately start you on two medications, mm-hmm. uh, three actually, two for diabetes, one for one being a statin for your cholesterol, and I would tell you to join Weight Watchers, right. and I would tell you that you need to lose some weight because it's not healthy being that's overweight and it's it's very simple it's simple science you just uh, eat less and move more that's right. all you have to do it's calories in calories out and i was a, i fully believe that i fully believe that the laws of thermo, thermodynamics applied to human nutrition and trying to lose fat or adipose tissue i thought that that applied right. and so therefore it was simple science you just had to get up off the couch put down the the cheetos and the bacon and you would start to lose weight and that that's as simple as it got and um At that time when I started practice, I was a relatively slender, healthy, young physician. I had my own health and uh, I just noticed through the years that people kept getting fatter and sicker and their A1Cs kept going up and their inflammatory markers kept going up. And you know this as a doctor, you always secretly suspect your patients are non-compliant. Right, non-compliant, they're just not listening to me. That's the great... Protector of a doctor's pride and self esteem mm-hmm. is that these people aren't listening to me, right? right? And so, about 35, 32 to 35, I started to gain weight and become very inflamed. And, and at one point, at my worst, most unhealthyest, I was 297 pounds. Really? Uh, A1C was uh, 6.2. Oh, so, wow. well into pre diabetic, working on becoming a type 2 diabetic, chronic joint pain, chronic. Reflux, severe reflux, uh, dandruff, allergies, itchy skin. Everything was inflamed, and I felt miserable.
0: But you knew you were compliant with your message, right?
1: Exactly. I yeah. knew that. I. But and that's the thing. And so the next step for me was I got to start practicing what I preach because that if you know me, you know that's an integral part of me. Is I lead by example. I I'd walk the walk. That's what I do. Either walk the walk or go home. Yeah. And so I thought, well, I'm obviously eating crap and sitting on the couch too much. And so I, I climbed up in the attic, and got all of my nutrition notes down, which, you know, the listeners may see is this huge, you know, tomes. And, <laughs> and it literally was a paperback book about a three-eighths of an inch thick yeah, and a half, maybe a half semester's notes, probably a quarter semester because it was only one day a week we had nutrition. Right. For which is more semester. than most people got, yeah, by that's the way, right, I would yeah. say. That sounds and, like a lot. And so let me let me explain that a little more because I I don't touch on this often. What we were really taught in our nutrition class was how to take over the nutrition for a very sick patient. Right. So if you'd been in a car wreck and you were unconscious and you were in the ICU, they taught us how to calculate your total calorie needs, your total protein, and how to how to feed you uh, parentally. And so that until you recovered, then you could take back over yourself, right. or if you were in the burn units, you know, you know your your calories and your fluids, you have to double and triple that for somebody with a severe burn, so really, the bulk of my nutrition education was how to how to take over the nutrition of somebody who couldn 't feed themselves mm-hmm. so maybe out of that half semester, maybe ten percent of that, probably less, was the caring feeding of just a normal human out on the street yeah. and I can sum it up in three statements that we were taught. Number one, eat lots of whole grains. Number two, eat no saturated fat. And number three, jog. Yeah, Like that is the totality of my medical school nutrition uh, education on how to just give a normal guy with a wife and a job and a family and a dog and a recliner, this (laughs) is what I I should tell him to do. And that is the totality of what I was taught. And so I'm like, okay, I got that three basic premises there. I'm going to implement those immediately. And so I got rid of all saturated fat. I got uh, I had lots of whole grains, and I even spent the extra money for the stone ground, blah, blah, blah. And then I started to jog every day or every other day at least. And I did this religiously for a month or two and gained another five or ten pounds. Yeah. And my numbers got even worse. And it was at that point, that was my epiphany. Oh, dude, you don't know what the hell you're talking about. That was looking in the mirror yeah. going, you you have no idea what you're talking about. These people have not been non-compliant. You've just been giving ignorant advice to all your patients who you thought you were helping.
0: Yeah, so to have that awakening you needed that personal experience. Sure, yeah. So is, you think that's why so many other physicians haven't had that awakening because they're missing that personal experience?
1: Well, I think they just haven't thought about it yeah. because you know as a physician it's very easy to, to get into a rut and just do what you do and, and, you know, the drug rep comes around and they they reassure you that you're practicing appropriately because you're writing enough, you know, numbers of their drug. Right. And then you go to drug rep sponsored dinners and, and there's a preeminent, you know, professor there who's going to lecture and everything you're doing jives with what he said. Yeah, And so therefore, yeah, you're doing a pretty good job. The state medical board hasn't come calling. So obviously you're not too far outside the bounds of, of normal practice. Okay. And I think doctors get false assurance from that. And then they, they fall back on that self-esteem protector of, well, my patients are just non-compliant. Yeah. And then that gives you the conscious wherewithal to say, yeah, I'm doing a good job, they're just not listening Because I know I'm doing what that that professor with the long white coat, I'm doing what he said. The drug rep is very attractive and very, you know, they seem to know what they're talking about. And so they're not upset with me. So I must be doing a good job.
0: So you realized the message was wrong, that you didn't know what you were talking about, but then what's the next step? Because I'd imagine that's a state of confusion, that's sure. a state of, well, what do I do now? Yeah,
1: absolutely. So what did you do next? So I started reading outside of my little medical box. I started reading books by um, uh, Lauren Cordain, The yeah. Paleo Diet. I read The Primal Blueprint by Mark Sisson. I read uh, Atkins' Diet Revolution. And so and you know, I just kept looking and, and I read lots of books, but those are the three books that really pointed me me in this direction. Mm-hmm. But I read multiple other books about uh, vegan, vegetarian, all kinds of other things and uh they were just more of the same because right. when you break down almost every other diet on the planet, ultimately it's a it's a calorie restriction diet that's dressed up with different window dressing. Mhm literally you know if you're talking about weight watchers jenny craig biggest loser they're all calorie restriction they're all uh, they all basically teach you to semi starve yourself for the rest of your life and yeah if i took people and locked them in my barn and just fed them lettuce and water they would lose weight they would yeah. they would approach their ideal body weight and even surpass it and and lose even more but they would be miserable they would hate me they would it would not be a fun life so right. the very fact that the biggest diets uh, that are they get the most advertisement and the most uh, talk up in the media are long long term semi-starvation diets that's what you're telling people starve yourself for the rest of your life and you'll lose weight and you'll keep mm. it off and but and then pretend that's sustainable right yeah and which it's not obviously and so the diet i had to look for a diet that was sustainable that was enjoyable that people would actually do and that would move all their markers of disease and inflammation in the correct direction. And so I thought, well, this, this high-fat or high-protein, moderate-fat that and low, low-carb, that was kind of everybody's message on that side of the fence is you got to cut out all the grains and sugars and carbs and stuff. And I thought, mm, okay, that's exactly backwards to everything I thought I knew. But let me try that for a month because that sounds like a diet I could actually do.
0: So you tried it in yourself first. Sure, absolutely, And that makes sense because you know absolutely. to try that in patients would seem crazy for most doctors from that standpoint. Absolutely, and yeah. I would never
1: do that. And so I thought, well, I'll try this for a month or two and see what goes on and I'll eat, I'll eat lots of ribeye and bacon and butter and eggs and see what happens. And at the end of that month, it, and I hate to sound snake oilish, but everything was better. Yeah. Every single thing without exception was better.
0: Was there still something in the back of your brain saying, yeah, but I'm going to kill myself doing this? That's exactly right. Yeah.
1: And so I was reading more and more into the lipid hypothesis mm-hmm. and the, you know, the cholesterol is bad, is that really true? Yeah. And so then I was also checking my markers every six months and I noticed that I'd, my total cholesterol had went up a little bit. And I'm like, hmm. And so that gave me another homework assignment right. <laughs> to start reading about, but I felt better and yeah. my A1C was better. And I've always been a bit of a contrarian just by my nature. And so the drug rep who sells statins will focus you on how important lowering someone's LDL cholesterol is yeah. and they'll exclude all everything else. They won't even talk about it. But most doctors will hearken back if I remind them, oh, you know, an elevated A1C, being a diabetic, that's that's probably a bigger risk factor for heart disease, stroke, and all the other Uh, complications, that's probably more important than LDL cholesterol. Even if you think LDL cholesterol is real and you should treat it, still somebody with an A1C of 12, that's probably a bigger risk factor for morbidity and mortality than that slightly elevated LDL. And so I kind of ignored the total cholesterol and LDL increases because I felt so much better. I could actually talk to patients without constantly having to clear my throat and and move my neck and swallow because of the chronic severe GERD oh, reflux. Wow. It was really, really bad, bad? It Was It really bad. Uh, and so when the Nexium drug rep would come to my office, I, I got all those samples. The patients didn't get the Nexium, I got <laughs> took them, all. them all. I took two a day for years mm. before I learned about this way of eating. And so after two or three months, I was like, dude, I feel so much better and I've lost, I don't remember how much weight, uh, but I was well back down under the 297 that I was at my peak. And I thought, you know, I'm going to try this with my most metabolically ill patients with the highest BMIs. They have a BMI of 45, 50, 55. Wow. They're on the, they're on the, the list for gastro bypass. I'm going to say, hey, why don't you try this for a month? You've got nothing to lose. You're going to get your, your gastro bypass or your row and or your, your you know bariatric surgery in a month or two. Why not try this in the interim? because I think it's going to shrink your liver size if nothing else and the surgeon will appreciate that when he's doing your surgery. But also it might help. And so I had a, a large percentage of those guys. There was probably 20 or 25 I talked to about this diet. And back then I was even also looking at the bulletproof diet, which is basically the same thing, just a different way of talking about it. And they all came back and for the monthly checkup they're like, dude, I feel better and I've lost 10, 15, 20 pounds. Is this, I mean, is this something I can do for another month? And I'm like, yeah, I think I think you should do it for another month because I'm yeah. doing this myself and that kind of gave them some reassurance, oh, this is not some crazy thing you don't know anything about. Dr. Right. Barry's eating this way too. And so they'd come back for their two-month checkup, they'd lost more weight. Their numbers were better, they felt better. <clears throat> I had people who were on the list for a knee transplant, a replacement, right, to get an artificial knee. And two or three of those guys said, "Yeah, I called the surgeon and canceled my appointment." And I'm gonna. I told him, you know, if it gets worse, I'll come. I'll call you, and we'll do it. But it feels so much better now. I'm just gonna keep doing this diet. And you know, as a doctor, anything that makes everything better, you're like, hmm, that sounds fishy, right? right? Exactly. Right. And so, but I'm like, but these are real guys. These are patients I've known for five, six, seven years. These guys are are salt of the earth. Real people, they got no dog in the race. They just want to feel better and not have life, potentially life threatening and definitely life altering surgery. And they enjoy the diet. Yeah. and they're not getting tired of this diet. They actually enjoy it, they want to do it for another month. They're asking me, pretty please, can I eat yeah. this for another month?
0: And That's got to change your perspective of work and your interaction with your patients and your Absolutely. enjoyment of work and seeing this whole new field open up. So on the one hand, it's sort of like invigorating. On the other hand, it can be pretty frustrating to say, why wasn't I taught this? Why has this been like swept under the rug and and maligned when it can be so beneficial? And it seems like you reacted a little bit to that part of it by reading your book, the or yeah. by writing your book, yeah. Lies My Doctor Told Me, which by the title is a little incendiary, is a little sort of mm-hmm. accusatory. Mm-hmm. Um, so Meant to be. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm sure, right? <laughs> so I just think it's interesting how you came to this process of of realizing for yourself first, then your patients, and then kind of getting a little angry. Yeah. Is, that, is yeah. that about right?
1: Yeah, and I'd actually been collecting these lies since I was an intern. Oh. Uh, but, you know, in residency, you don't question, you don't argue. You just write not. stuff down, memorize and move on. Right. <clears throat> and so I, I can remember the very first thing that made me go, what? I was on uh, my obstetrics rotation. I'm family practice, so we, in Tennessee, we're actually trained. We do C-sections and, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, vaginal births and all that. And so we were on call the night before. The next morning we were discharging all the vaginal births and the chief resident said, now don't forget to write vitamin D drop prescriptions for all the exclusively breastfed babies. And I'm like, what? Why would I, why? What's that mean? He said, well, humans don't make vitamin D in their breast milk. And I'm like, there's no way that's true.
0: Yet somehow we survived right. to be here you know, today. <laughs> for a quarter million years as a species,
1: we've been here and we're not extinct, we didn't all die of rickets, that's exactly what went through my head. I'm like, what? And so I, I look at the attending physician over in the corner who's doing something, but he's nodding like, yep, that's right. I'm like, okay, obviously I don't understand something because that makes no sense. And so later when I did have time to research that, I didn't argue, I just went along wrote the prescriptions. But later when I researched it, I had found that a, a doctor in the Carolinas had already done the study, and she found that when you put uh, breastfeeding women on 6,400 international units of vitamin D3 a day, which is mimicking what we would have gotten thousands of years ago, being outside all day and doing what we do, women make vitamin D plenty for their baby. And so, it, and so looking back, my chief resident was a very smart guy. Very intelligent, very real well read. My attending obviously was the attending at a teaching university for a reason. Very right. smart guy. Right. But they both had no idea. Not only they were wrong about that fact, but the underlying concept of how did we get here if that is in fact true. Right. That and to me that blew me away. Like those are I looked up to those guys and still do. They're very intelligent when it comes to certain things. But mm-hmm. even that just that basic premise, they missed the magnitude of that, like, no, that's totally wrong.
0: It's a great example because they're not being malicious, they're not trying to hide something, they're not trying to promote an agenda, it's just who's got time to investigate every single recommendation. Some things you have to take at face value, but it takes someone like you to question those. Yeah, Yeah.
1: exactly. And so that's one of the lies in the book that I talk about In, in multiple chapters in lies my doctor told me came from my journey Back to good health and back yeah. to just being vigorous and vibrant and happy and, and eager to live my life instead of
0: groaning and complaining when I get out of bed in the morning. <laughs> right, good point. So there's been a no, there's a number of examples you have in your book, and one is uh, whole grains, healthy yeah. whole grains, right? right. So uh, this concept of healthy whole grains came by comparing whole grains to refined grains. No question, it's going to be better for right. you, but then it got blown into this concept of everybody needs healthy whole grains. So, tell us a little bit about that lie.
1: Yeah, and so every medical concept that I kind of roll over in my mind, initially I'm all about the common sense, does this make good common sense? Number two, does it make ancestral sense? Like Mm -hmm. the vitamin D thing, really, how did we not become extinct from rickets, right? We would have all had rickets if we didn't get our vitamin D drops because we were all breastfed. Right. And then the third one is any meaningful research and not just drug company funded research, but meaningful research with large enough numbers that are blinded and controlled so you can actually glean useful information. And so I try to take those three things, common sense, ancestry and the available research yeah. and form an opinion about this. And so that's what I try to do with each and every lie. And so the whole grain thing, first of all, human beings have only eaten grains of any kind in any meaningful percentage for the last ten to 12,000 years. And so we've been on this planet as a species for at least 200,000 years. And so anything that makes you more fit to reproduce and live, that's good, right? And so you would have think we would, would have discovered the grain thing tens and 20,000s of years ago if it was that big of a deal. And so I'm always suspicious of any new finding or discovery that flies in the face of our ancestry and our and just good good old common sense right. and immediately that flies in the face of two of them, right? And then when you start to look at the actual any meaningful research about grains or whole grains, it's it's ridiculous. there's nothing there. And so therefore, yeah, you don't need grains at all. Our ancestors for 99.95 percent of our existence on this planet, Maybe ate a grain every now and then by accident. They might have eaten a grass seed as they were picking up the meat off the ground. <laughs> but they didn't go out of their way to look for grains or to try to 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 grow grains. That's you know, not what they did.
0: You know what's interesting is there's there's sort of new data or people trying to come up with new anthropological data to say, no, we did have grains earlier earlier than we thought. But even when you even if you accept that as true, it's still a drop in the bucket in That's terms right. of the the long term um evolution. And though then you apply it to modern day yeah. and the people we're talking about today are not the people we were in evolutionary time who were active all day long, who were in the sun all day long, who never sat, who weren't eating at all you could eat buffets and junk food mm-hmm. and processed foods. So even removing all that and saying just modern day studies of whole grains, what do you find in your patients when they eat whole grains right. and how they do?
1: Every patient without exception, their, their inflammation gets better and that can be inflammation in their skin or their gut or their yeah. joints or their brain their mental activity the inflammation and the consequences of that inflammation get better when i tell my patients to remove all grains even stone ground organic non gmo whole grains yeah they get better physically and mentally mm. and so then there you go there's that confirmation of not only does it not make any common sense or ancestral sense, there's no real research to support it. And so if you come to me with some new thing like, oh, everybody needs this now, if you're going to try to override the common sense of the situation and the ancestral appropriateness of it, you better have some damn good research. I mean, some over-the-top research if you hope to cancel out the ancestral appropriateness and the common sense of the situation. Because that's that's a whole
0: that's why we do research. So you mean not like a weak observational study with right. a hazard ratio of one point <clears throat> one? <clears throat> right? Exactly yeah. right. Yeah, you
1: don't even come to me with that because if you're going to tell me that what we've done for the last two hundred thousand years is dumb, you better have some over the top controlled research that proves that, yeah. or I'm not going to listen to you.
0: Yeah. How about dairy? What do you have to say about milk and dairy?
1: And so let me, uh, as a mean method of full disclosure, let me tell you, I grew up being a milk baby. When I was playing football in high school, I used to drink a gallon of milk a day.
0: A gallon?
1: Yes, every day. And I thought that was really going to build my bones and muscles and make me a better ball player. And so, don't think I've always hated dairy, that's not who I am. I grew up on milk, yeah. okay? And so, you didn't leave my grandmother's house without having at least one glass of milk, that was, <laughs> you would get a spanking. I mean, it was a mandatory, <laughs> you had to drink your milk. And so, then the more I started to look at this, I'm like, wait a minute, we've only been ingesting dairy products like this for about eight or 9,000 years. I mean, you know, of course we had it before, but once a human being was weaned from the breast... They drink water their entire life, that's Mm -hmm. it, that was it for 99.99% of our time on this planet. There you go, there's your ancestral appropriateness, we didn't do that. And then also another thing I like to bring into this is life always finds a way, we've heard that, right? And so if dairy were really that magical of a a nutrition source, there would be some weasel. Or some some varmint or some rodent or some bird that would have adapted its behavior to steal the milk of mammals. Ah. There would be some some weasel that snuck into and, and, and suckled at the cow's Heat in the middle of the night or something. It had some kind of anesthetic so the cow would know. Just like mosquitoes suck blood because it's very nutritious right. for them. Right. There would be some other animal that did that, right? Because we, we know of animals that will sneak in and steal eggs, sure. that will actually confiscate other bird and put their eggs in that nest so that that bird does all the work. Right. Very, very evolutionary smart. But there is no example of any other animal Stealing the milk of mammals—it just doesn't happen, and yeah. so that's that's weird. Also, no mammal drinks the milk of another species of mammal. There is no example of that in 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 biology. Okay and a big part of my training was comparative anatomy and animal biology and so there's just there that didn't happen and that doesn't make sense if it's such a great source of nutrition some animal would have found a way to steal that nutrition because that's what animals do yeah. we try to get stuff the easiest way possible <laughs> but no animal ever did that and so then with all that in in the back of my head I started looking at the research there's none there there's no meaningful research that trumps all those other things and there then we go back to how kind of how I lived my life if you're going to tell me this common sense thing is wrong, you better have some good data to back that up that's very hard data that can't even be argued with. And nobody has that. And so I stopped drinking milk and that's one of the biggest reasons that my chronic allergies and my chronic dandruff and my and and that helped the reflux as well. All the all those things got better when I stopped any liquid dairy at all. Mm. And so the only dairy I'll even entertain now is whole full fat cheese, real cheese or butter, yeah. or ghee, maybe some heavy cream every now and then, but I just don't touch liquid milk because it's made for the, the species that made it. And I used to tell my patients, if you want to gain weight as quickly as possible, then you need to drink lots of cow's milk every day because that's why cows make their milk like they do because the the calf has to gain about 1,200 pounds yeah. in a year. That's what they do. And so if you want to gain weight, and when yeah. I say weight, I mean fat. Right. Drink lots of milk because that'll get it for you. Yeah, and uh, a lot of people have noticed that their their health improves and their weight loss quickly accelerates when they get the liquid milk. You know, but okay with
0: the solid. Okay with the solid dairy.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so my thinking with that is cheese is cheese because there's a microbe that's acted, and so the microbe ate all the sugar. That's what it was after. And in the process, it actually bent the protein molecules. That's why cheese is solid, not a liquid. Mm -hmm. And so you've gotten rid of all the sugar, which I think is the main problem with milk. But then for many people, the proteins in milk, they're not species appropriate. They're made for cows or goats or whatever. And so Mm -hmm. when you bend those proteins, you potentially make them much less inflammatory to your Mm -hmm. system. So all you're left with is no sugar, all the fat and then a modified protein because the microbe bent the protein to make cheese or to make yeah. kefir or to make yogurt. And I think that's why a lot of people find they can't include those things in their diet and they're not nearly as inflammatory or um, fat-provoking as just drinking milk.
0: Yeah, two really good examples of your thought process, which I think is is very helpful. And, you know, it's interesting how people would sort of react to that thought process because some people would say, oh, well, that's not based in science, show me the study. Right. But your thought process is saying, show me the study to counteract the right. hundreds of thousands of years right. of evidence. Yeah. And so how are people reacting to this? I mean, both from you know sort of an accusatory standpoint almost versus a science standpoint. Um, how yeah. are physicians... and in... I get the full spectrum yeah. of reactions
1: as, as you probably do as well. Yeah. But <clears throat> if somebody's really sick... Metabolically ill, very, very inflamed, and they feel bad, and they try this, then they feel better. Right, and that's I don't have to talk to them anymore. They're done. They're like, oh, okay, got it. They're a believer, and they do it, and then, and so I have a lot of kickback from this subpopulation of of young, healthy, lean twenty somethings yeah. who are in the trainer sphere or the nutritionist sphere, and they've never been obese, they've never been overweight or inflamed or sick. They they they've been blessed with good genetics. Mm-hmm. And they can eat whatever and feel great and look great. And uh, that worked for me. I mean, when I was 22, I was this tall and weighed 185 or 190 pounds, had a six pack without trying. I mean, I was just, you know, I was a very lean guy. Yeah. And so if you had taken nutrition advice from me at that time, I didn't know anything about what I was talking about because whatever I did worked for me. And that's who I get the most kickback from is is these young healthy guys saying, no, it's all about calories, stupid, it's science. And it's like, yeah, you don't know because first of all, you're young, you're a young punk who's never had to even think about his diet. You can eat, you could live on Doritos and Twinkies,
0: and you'd still look that way. Look great and feel yeah. great. I
1: used to be that same guy back in my twenties, and Come so I talk to me in twenty that's years. Exactly right. I yeah. know. I used to live your life. I know. I could be like, oh no, you need to eat more honey buns. Look at me, <laughs> right? And I can. They would have looked at me and went, boy, he looks great. Maybe I should eat more honey mm-hmm. buns. But these these young guys don't know what they're talking about, and so that's where I get the biggest negative kickback. Most doctors are like, wait a minute, show me the science. And I flip that on them and I say, no, you show me the science because what I'm talking about is evolutionarily appropriate, ancestrally appropriate, it makes common sense. So for you to trump that in your medical practice and and recommend something that is contrary to what we've done for 99% of our time on this planet,
0: sounds like it's you who should have the data, not me. Yeah, great perspective, especially when you're in the context of a study that you just posted on social media recently that 40% of docs are overweight and 23% are obese. Now, if that's where your information is coming from without the data to back up what they're doing... There has to be a broader reawakening, and it's almost crazy that there hasn't been.
1: Abs- I totally agree, yeah. and that's why I get—I sometimes get a bit harsh on yeah. social media because I think that fat, unhealthy, miserable doctor—he needs somebody to get in his face and say, "Hey, dude, you know, ultimately, you're not just harming yourself; you're not just making your own family miserable with yeah. your miserable existence. You're actually harming people who are paying you to help them, and in my mind, that is the." ultimate malpractice is if you're so mentally lazy, you're not even going to think about this, you're just mm-hmm. going to repeat what the drug rep said, yeah. or you're going to repeat something you heard on CNN or Fox News last night, that's it. You're going to read the conclusions of medical studies and that's how you're going to practice medicine, that's, that's pretty crappy. Yeah. And, you know, and so I try to get in that guy's face and say, hey, what are you doing? You know, right. and I, so I, I made a YouTube video, why are there fat doctors? Explain that to me. Right, Right? and so if you if you had a mechanic and you went to him and his car never started, (laughs) you'd stop going. You wouldn't talk to him. (laughs) You'd be like, okay, thanks, dude. I'm going to look elsewhere. You know, if you had a if you had a cosmetologist or you know your hairdresser and their hair was ratchet, you would not go to them. And so why are you going to entrust your your health and your one life to a fat, unhealthy, diabetic doctor?
0: Wow, no, crazy perspective. Don't do Mm. that. Makes so much sense, right? But not something that that. That we live with or think about. Right, but we have
1: to. And it's not fair. And I tell patients this it's not your fault, but it is your problem. Yeah. If you have a, and I have, I had patients, and we have a preeminent gastroenterologist in Nashville, and he tells every patient who has a, a flare up of diverticulitis to avoid seeds and nuts and that is his, that's his number one piece of advice mm-hmm. which you may know is completely meaningless advice. He's probably actually increasing the risk of having a flare-up of their diverticulitis because there was a huge, huge study done with 43,000 participants that shows without doubt what causes diverticulitis or flare-ups at least, is being overweight, is eating processed foods, is smoking, is alcohol, it's all those things. It has nothing to do, oh, you ate you ate some strawberries and a seed got trapped in your diverticula.
0: Somehow that's been passed down but, from but generation even, to generation. Even
1: preeminent board-certified gastroenterologists tell people this message. And I've talked about that myth relentlessly for at least seven years on social media and yeah. it's still out there. I just talked to a lady who her gastroenterologist just told her husband, you gotta stop the seeds and nuts because mm-hmm. that's what's causing your diverticulitis, even though that is based on no research. Human beings have eaten nuts and seeds since before recorded history, but yet somehow now that's the cause yeah. of, of diverticulitis. And so but that's the kind of doctor I'm trying to reach. Right. And I think we're having an effect. I think they're hearing this and they may it's making them uncomfortable, which yeah. is good.
0: <laughs> That was my next question. We're talking about a lot of sort of the negative sides of things, but are you seeing the tide changing? Are you seeing that this movement is having an effect both for focusing on the quality of research and focusing on the low-carb movement that is now gaining so much steam? What are you seeing among your colleagues?
1: I think it's having an effect at all levels, which was actually my goal because it's having a huge effect in the patient population because they're now awake. Like, oh, you're telling me that what I eat actually has a meaningful effect on my health and how I feel? Mm -hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Let me look into this. Nurses and mid-level providers are really coming on board with this. And I have had numerous uh, physician assistants and advanced practice nurses come to me as a patient and say, I believe in what you're doing but my my supervising physician won't allow me to talk about it. Yeah. And so then we discuss ninja-level ways of getting this information to the patients without them getting in trouble with their supervising physician. Uh, I think currently what we're doing mainly with physicians is just making them very uncomfortable because, you know, physicians like to know what they're talking about. They like to know that they know and, and yeah. there's no doubt about this. This is settled science, that's the term we hear a lot. And now we're we're throwing up in their face, no, no, dude, this is not subtle science at all. You're practicing actually quite pre- precarious medicine. You may be standing on a foundation of sand. You may be giving your patient bad advice and if that makes a doctor uncomfortable, good. Yeah. Because doctors' jobs are to think and to read and to research and to read outside their field of specialty. You don't get to just do what the drug rep who came and brought the new samples to you. You don't get to. That's not. mm -mm. You don't get paid what you get paid, and you don't get the prestige of being a doctor if that's how you're going to practice medicine. You don't deserve it.
0: Interesting. A doctor's job is to think and to read, and I think if you asked most people, most doctors that they would not agree. Uh,
1: Exactly, their job is to follow the standard of care. Right, and to practice. EBM which they think stands for evidence-based medicine but which I propose stands for eminence-based medicine. And so whatever the guy with the longest white coat in the room says, yeah. that's what we're all going to do. That's asinine. Mm-hmm. I mean you are you're literally harming your patients if you practice that kind of EBM which I would I would posit is the, the most common kind of EBM practiced. And it's supposed to be evidence based, like, oh, we may we tell you this because it's based on all this research. But in reality, especially when you start talking about things like statins and the new medications for type two diabetes and all that kinds of stuff, there's no meaningful research that backs these drugs up. Right. Yeah. They don't nobody looks at all cause mortality if you're taking these drugs. They just look at, oh, it look it lowered your A1C by one tenth of a point. And they don't even compare it to the other drugs on the market. They just compare it to, to placebo. Right. So these, these studies are weak, weak, weak to start with. And then you're going to base your entire practice on that? Yeah. Come on.
0: Great perspective about the eminence based medicine. There's yeah. just a study that came out in JAMA looking at the guidelines by the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology, and how many of them are truly evidence based. It was like 10% right. are actually based on high-quality exactly. evidence. The majority of them are consensus statement, but right. somehow a consensus statement becomes evidence-based medicine. That's but exactly right. Yeah. yeah. And so
1: if you get a bunch of old, old doctors in a room with long white coats and let them discuss something and come up with their opinion, somehow that, now that's, that's evidence, that's yeah. research? I don't think so.
0: So when it comes to treating metabolic disease, when it comes to treating diabetes in your 20-year career, have you seen anything even remotely as effective as a low-carb diet?
1: Nothing ever, nothing yeah. ever. If you could patent a pill that does everything that a low-carb diet does, you would be a trillionaire. Yeah. But there is, there is no medication, there is nothing except... And, and I've, I've started calling it the proper human diet mm-hmm. because if I'm giving you a slow poison every day, you're going to be sick. I'm not going to kill you today or even tomorrow. You might not die for 25, 30 years, yeah. but I'm poisoning you a little bit each day. You're going to have inflammation, you're going to have bad lab markers, you're not going to feel good, you're going to be irritable, you're going to, you're going to get obese, uh, too overweight or too skinny. You're just not going to be healthy and vibrant and vigorous. And so then when I remove that slow poison from your diet and you get better, Everybody's surprised by that? (laughs) Really? Is that shocking? And so I think what most low-carb diets do is they remove the slow poison of sugar, grains, and industrial seed oils. That's Mm -hmm. the three big steps of any ancestrally appropriate diet and people get better. But it's not because you've added something magical to their diet or to their medical regimen or to their supplement regimen. That has nothing to do with this. What you've done is you've just stopped poisoning that mammal. And then the mammal gets healthier when you stop poisoning it. And so I think when you feed a human being the proper human diet, yeah. they get healthier and they get happier and they, they get more productive and they get more successful. It's almost like you give them a superpower when you start feeding them the diet that their DNA knows what to do with.
0: Now that makes complete sense, but you mentioned earlier when you hear that X, Y, and Z and everything gets better, it sounds almost like a snake oil salesman. So is there a population that doesn't thrive with this type of diet? Is there someone that you've seen in your clinic that is, doesn't work for for some reason or that you would caution against this? What's the, what's the downside if there is one? Yeah,
1: I haven't found it yet. Yeah, There is a very minuscule subpopulation that may not be able to eat a high-fat diet, if they have some inborn errors of fatty acid metabolism, mm-hmm. they may not be able to eat this diet. And I, I was doing research to do a YouTube video about this population, but it, literally in the in the US it's about 750 people oh. in the entire US who cannot eat a high-fat diet because they just can't digest that much fat. Everybody else can do it. Yeah. There is There is no... Patient population who shouldn't eat this way. At least I've yet to find them.
0: What about Doc? I don't have a gallbladder. I can't eat fat. Right, and so I've had
1: that question hundreds of times on the Facebook Lives that we do. Yeah, and then and so I'll have that question like I don't have a gallbladder. I can't I can't do keto, right? And then I have uh, about eighty to one hundred and fifty people chime in in the comments and say, No, I don't have a gallbladder, and I'm doing great. And so we have all these n equals one experiments, right? All this anecdotal evidence. But you yourself know when you've got a you know a thousand anecdotes, uh, that's probably something you should pay attention to. Yeah. And so I, I don't I think if you don't have a gallbladder, you can eat low carb. I think if you if you have thyroid problems, you need to eat low carb. If you have fatty liver, you absolutely must eat low carb to reverse that. Um, gastric bypass, yes, you can eat keto low carb. You could just keep asking me the questions, and so <clears throat> that's why I've started calling it the proper human diet because right. then it makes that question silly hey, doc, I don't have a gallbladder, can I eat the proper human diet? And you're like, <laughs> think about your question. Right. Yes, of course you can. Yeah. yeah and true so true. now when they say, I have X, can I eat the proper human diet? It it becomes a silly question. Of course you should eat the proper human diet. I'm sorry that you had that the misfortune of having one of your body parts taken out by a surgeon that you may or may not have needed done, but you still need to eat the proper human diet because that's what we're talking about here.
0: Right. Do you... Do coach people to sort of ease into it at different levels maybe if they don't have a gallbladder or if they have kidney disease or if they have some other medical conditions as opposed to somebody who just wants to lose weight and jump into it? Or can everybody transition the same?
1: I think the transition period can be different for different people and I think for some people it probably needs to be different. Yeah. Uh, as an, If you're treating a severe alcoholic, there are some alcoholics who are young and healthy, you can just... Put them, you know, put them in rehab in cold turkey them and it's yeah. perfectly safe to do that. You know that as a doctor. There are other very sick alcoholics who you run the risk of seizures and, and electrolyte abnormality, all kinds of stuff and so you might wean them slowly yeah. over a month or two. But both of those guys need to stop the alcohol because they're alcoholics. Same goes for eating lots of carbs and sugars and industrial seed oils. Some people might feel terrible and you might increase the risk of having certain things if they transition too quickly it doesn't mean they shouldn't eat the proper human diet, it just means they might need to take a month or two or three. And for some people it's a social thing, none of their families on board with this. And so if they, if they did an overnight change it would just destroy the household dynamic and right. so they can't do that. Other people who are young and metabolically healthy, I think they can switch to low-carb overnight. I think there's zero danger of doing that. Um, But yeah, I think different people should come at this with different speeds, Mm -hmm. just like some alcoholics need to wean slower than others. Good
0: analogy. Is a carnivore diet a proper human diet? I think for many people it is. When
1: I first started uh, low-carb, high-fat, you know, the ancestral, the primal, uh, there was a big proponent in the paleo community who was carnivore and I thought, yeah, it's a little too much, I don't know about that, right? But then and so I kind of came to low-carb then keto and then now I consider the carnivore diet, which is eating only animal products, only full-fat animal products. Uh, some people think it's eating only red meat, but I think probably thinking again of the common sense and the ancestry mm-hmm. of this, we probably ate nose to tail, we ate the liver and we, ate the, we used the bones, We we ate the whole animal. Uh, I think that the carnivore diet is a subset of the ketogenic diet. And I've actually had people comment, well, I'm going to unfollow you because now you're carnivore. You're not keto anymore. And I'm like, oh. no, no, I think carnivore is the ultimate ketogenic diet. I think it's the ultimate low-carb diet because it's almost zero carb. And I have been eating carnivore or carnivore-ish for months, over a year now. And I have it's actually taken me a step further in reclaiming my health and I actually feel better now at 50 being a carnivore than I felt at 35. And, and I, you know, if somebody's 20, that's not going to mean anything to them. <laughs> but if somebody's if somebody out there listening who's been 35 before and, yeah. and now and been 50, they understand what a huge statement that is. Right. Like I, I'm, not, sure. I'm not on any drugs, I don't take anything, I don't take any supplements, I don't take anything and I feel better at 50
0: than I felt at 35. That's powerful. That is powerful. Uh, so, do you use a progression then with your patients to say go low carb, and then if you're having trouble, go keto, and then if you're still having trouble, go carnivore, yeah. or do you just, or would you just jump the order and go straight to carnivore for yeah, anybody? Yeah, I follow
1: a rough algorithm just like that. Yeah, most people, I would say probably eighty percent of people do great with just a ketogenic diet, whether that ketogenic diet is high fat, medium protein or high protein medium fat. Yeah. I think uh, for some people they they like the high protein better. Not many, but some. Mm-hmm. And so I, for 80% of my experience that's all they need. They're great. They feel great. They're doing great, but for some people, and I'm one of them, I have to go even lower carbohydrate than 50 total grams a day or even lower than 20 total grams of carbs a day. I have to get if I if I get above 10 grams of total carbs a day, I'll start to get inflamed and I'll start to bloat. And so I don't know if there's something in the even the keto approved veg that yeah. inflames my gut, which leads to inflammation elsewhere. But all I know is when I eat lots of fatty meat and butter and bacon and eggs, I feel amazing. All my numbers in my labs, which I get checked every six months, look exquisite. My energy's off the chart. Um, you know, Nisha's a little bit younger than me. And, and I, you know, basically she's like, you know, I feel like I'm the old one in this, this couple because you never shut up and you never <laughs> sit down. How is that possible? And so for a while she was not on board with the low-carb because she's younger and she's just more metabolically healthy. But now, and she has Hashimoto's. And so mm. she kept kind of poo-pooing the low-carb. Like, ah, that's silly, I don't know, whatever. And then yeah. she got mono. And it, usually for her mono, when she has a resurgence, it's six weeks on the couch. Oh, boy. And she just happened to think, you know, I'm going to try this stupid low-carb thing he's doing. And within a week, she would already recovered from her mono and her Hashimoto's, which also gave her daily symptoms, was much, much better. And so at that point, she was a convert, right? Yep. Yep. And so she didn't listen to me and do what I said, she just tried it for herself and she felt so much better. And now she's here with me today at this conference and and she's 15 weeks pregnant. And she's eating lower carb. She was eat, She's eating so low carb right now. It would make any obstetrician very nervous to know that she's eating that low carb. Right, but she's no doing problem. great. the The baby's doing great. Everybody's great. We're we're very healthy and very happy. And so to say, and and you know the the official guidelines from the nutrition entity, I can't think of their, their initials right now is that the average pregnant woman should eat about 300 grams of carbs a day 300 grams yeah that's that's oh. their and
0: that's average and of course that's based on rigorous academic <clears throat> studies and that <laughs> gets an excellent point let's talk <laughs> and about sarcasm that.
1: and so then you know here's Nisha eating maybe 15 20 25 grams a mm. day which any nutritionist or obstetrician would make the face you just made like holy yeah. crap what that this can't be good. And so if that obstetrician listening right now, I would say, okay, Bubba, show me the research that you're basing your diet recommendations on. Let me see that research, yeah, right? right? And so <clears throat> to any registered dietitian out there, what, what research are you basing your recommendations on? All you're doing is you're parroting what you were taught by the professors at the nutrition school that was sponsored by Kellogg's or Post or Kraft. So you maybe should reassess that. Are you actually harming patients with your research? Because I promise you, you don't have a single controlled trial that you're basing your your yeah. dietary recommendations on. You should probably think about that.
0: Great perspective, yeah. And and I love the story that, that your wife didn't listen to you to do the low-carb diet, she had to try it on her own. Right. Common dynamic, I'm sure, in a lot of couples. But also the same thing with whether it's doctor-patient relationship or a friend relationship or a family relationship sometimes it takes that personal experience to have that awakening because we have to go against so many decades and generations of a different paradigm. Right, And it's not easy. And that's why you with your YouTube channel with hundreds of thousands of, of, of views for every... Every actually I don't want to inflate the numbers, I don't know, but I know there's thousands of views that you get and the number of people you reach with this message, I mean this is the groundswell that we need that's right. happening. And, and right,
1: never are we going to see a press conference held by the American Diabetes Association saying, oh, you know all that dietary advice we've been giving you for the last however many years? Yeah. We were exactly wrong about that. That's, that press conference will never be held. And so what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to reach the parents and the grandparents and the children who will who will die or who will be maimed before the American Diabetes Association finally backtracks and says, well, okay. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they just issued new guidelines and they're, they actually list low-carb as an option, right. a viable option to try. It's at the very bottom of the list, which uh, that's great. But you can you, you know yourself... Big changes like this take decades. Oh, yeah. And there's a joke in, in uh, academia and in medicine that before you can change a treatment uh, paradigm, all the old guys have to die because they're the, they're the ones who thought of what we're, we currently practice. Right. And so it's my calling, it's my mission to not let there be grandparents that we lose and limbs that we lose and kidney function that we lose waiting for all the old guys to die hmm. before we can change the paradigm. I'm trying to change the paradigm not from the top down but from the bottom up. And so I've actually had people come to me and say, you know, I, I took your advice, change my life. My husband was not on board, but after he saw the change in me, he's now keto. And we have changed so many people in our community that our doctor that we all go to, finally had to say, yeah, whatever you're doing, keep doing it and I'm going to look into this keto thing myself. Yeah. And so it's a, it's a very powerful statement about this way of eating, about eating the proper human diet that when you do it, the change in you is so drastic that your neighbor sees this and says, what are you doing? Your husband finally stops hearing what you're doing as nagging and starts hearing it as lovingly trying to say, hey, you should really try this. Yeah. And then the doctor in this community, has seen so many of his patients who failed on his nutrition advice, suddenly they're like they've bloomed. They 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 now have superpowers compared to what they used to be as a human, so much so that he's looking into this. He's like, wait a minute, what the heck? Or they go talk to their doctor and he's like, yeah, me and my wife are doing keto but I was just afraid to talk about it. Yeah, But I think it's a great thing keep doing it. And so we're, you and I and everybody in this community are changing the world, changing the paradigm from the ground up. Yep. And I think that's a, just a, the most beautiful thing that I could ever be a part of and I'm very grateful.
0: Well, we're glad you're a part of it. So keep spreading the message and keep doing your job of taking care of people, making people healthier, happier, and living better yeah, lives. I will never stop. All right. Thanks Thank a lot. you, Ken.